Hi, this is Sarah McCaslin with the Forgotten Sheet Podcast, and I'm going to jump right in to this podcast. Our topic is gold medalist Scottish Olympic runner Eric Liddell. Now, that's what he's primarily known for, often nicknamed the uh, Flying Scotsman in the newspapers. A lot of people also remember him for the way he was presented in the film Chariots of Fire, which is about his uh, time period immediately before and during the Olympics. He's best known, at least among Christians, not so much for his Olympic prowess, but for refusing to participate in an Olympic running event on Sunday. And we're going to talk about that in detail during this podcast. Now, something that people might not know is that Eric was also the son of missionaries and he chose rather to follow them into the mission field than pursue a professional sports career. He felt like that was where the Lord was leading him. And then to give you a quick glimpse into the man's character, he was a POW of the Japanese during World War II and at one point uh, he was given the chance for release but he allowed a pregnant woman to take his place and then ended up dying in that POW camp. So he was a most unusual Christian gentleman, and I think he is an excellent example of Christian masculinity. We hear a lot about toxic masculinity, and we know that masculinity in and of itself is not toxic. There are certain behaviors that would make masculinity toxic, and there are also certain behaviors that make masculinity a very good, very positive thing. And I think Eric Liddell is an excellent, excellent example of that. Now, Eric, if I recall correctly, his father originally wanted to call him Henry Eric Liddell. And he had mentioned this to a friend of his. The father did. And his friend said, well, are you sure you want to do that? Um... Mr. Liddell, his initials are going to be H-E-L. And you know that's going to make life really hard for him in school. So it was changed to Eric Henry Liddell so he wouldn't have the initials hell. (laughs) Well, he was born on January 16, 1902 in northeastern China where his parents were actively serving as missionaries. Eric was the second son of the Reverend and Mrs. James Dunlop Liddell, who were missionaries for the London Mission Society. Now, when Eric was six, he and his brother were sent off to Eltham College, a boarding school for missionaries in South London. That was uh, so hard for his mom to do, but she knew if she wanted him to have a solid education to build his life upon, he needed to be in an environment that was consistent and that was quiet. And so that's what she did, and he stayed there for 12 years. Now, during his time there, any time the Liddell family had a furlough, they would return to that area so that they could be reunited with their kids. And then instead of the boys staying at the boarding school at night while their parents were there, uh, the parents would bring the boys with them after their classes. And so that's uh, kind of the atmosphere that Eric grew up in. Now, he loved to play as a kid. His uh, favorite thing was... uh, playing with a hoop and stick. If you look at pictures of the family uh, when Eric was young, you'll see him oftentimes with that hoop nearby. Uh, He loved to run. He loved to play. He was also full of mischief, as most little kids are. 
um, it said that he had been hanging around in the village near where Eltham College was, and he learned some, shall we say, less than appropriate language. So he decided to try out his new words at the dinner table. And his mother looked at him, and she said, Eric, we don't use swear words at the dinner table. We don't use swear words at all. We're Christians. And he said, well, maybe if you tell me what all the swear words, swear words are, then I won't use them. And she looked at him, and she said, let's just handle this on a word-by-word basis. <laughs> but that's uh, one of the stories from uh, uh, Eric's, Eric's life. But you notice he was cooperative. He said, if you'll just tell me what all those bad words are, I won't use any of them. Well, Eric had, as you know, uh, as I mentioned, an older brother. He also had a younger sister and a younger brother. And he absolutely adored his siblings, including his sister. Well, he was athletically gifted. That became apparent as he began to grow into young adulthood. He loved to run. He ran track. And he played rugby in school and college and excelled at both. While he was at Eltham, he was an outstanding athlete. He became the captain of both the cricket and rugby union teams. Now, his headmaster there was named George Robertson, and he described Eric as being entirely without vanity. Now, as Eric began to excel in these sports, his name began to show up more and more in the Scottish newspapers. And as his fame and popularity continued to grow, he was nicknamed the Flying Scotsman and done so in an affectionate manner. Now, once Eric finished uh, high school, what we would call high school here in the U.S., he entered college to pursue a degree in pure science. And while he was there, he shifted his focus away so much from rugby, although he still played, and he shifted it more into running. And you can look online and find all kinds of pictures of Eric in connection with the sports that he um, participated in. You'll see lots of pictures of him there. And he was, uh, at least in my own personal opinion, quite a handsome young man. Well, newspapers, again, began to carry more and more stories about his performance at track meets. And that can be hard on a young person to receive that kind of fame and no doubt a little bit of adulation, especially in connection with sports. And interestingly enough, this didn't turn Eric's head. He was able to leverage his fame and popularity in Scotland to help him start winning others to the Lord. Because in the midst of all of this, in the midst of school and college and running, and I apologize if you heard my uh, computer making a beedo beedo sound in the background. I forgot to uh, turn off my message alerts. But if you look at this, he still had the Lord as the main emphasis in his life during all of this. Now, he was chosen to speak for the Glasgow Students Evangelistic Union because he was such a devout Christian. They knew that he claimed the name and that he lived up to it. And so the student union was hoping that uh, if he were listed as one of their speakers, that it would draw large crowds, not for money, not for the group to get popular, but to draw crowds to hear about Jesus, to give them an opportunity to hear the gospel. And so the 
Student Evangelistic Union would send out a group of eight to ten men to an area where they would stay with the local population and they would hold Christian meetings. And it was Liddell's job to be the lead speaker in such meetings and to help uh, with his uh, fellow evangelistic team to reach the men of Scotland with the gospel. Okay, so let's fast forward to the year 1924. The Olympics are being held in Paris, France. And Eric qualified for the 1924 Paris Olympics, representing Great Britain. His best event was the 100-meter dash. And he had never, ever lost this event. In all the times he had competed in the 100-meter, he had never lost. But there was a problem, a problem for Eric. The heat, the preliminary rounds for the 100-meter were held on a Sunday. And Eric had very strong Christian beliefs about what was and was not appropriate behavior on a Sunday. Uh, and Christians were much more strict about what they would do on Sundays in years past. Uh, even as if you go back, say, to the 1980s in Texas, the blue laws were in effect where department stores and uh, different stores were closed on a Sunday. There were only certain things you were allowed to buy. You go back further, there were people that believed that you should not do any work on a Sunday, that you even shouldn't cook on Sunday, and that the food had to be prepared. Um, again, with almost, with almost anything, there are varying, uh, I hate to say the word extremes, but I can't think of a better word now. There were those that believed that there should be no whistling on Sunday, no playing games on Sunday, no running. Um, and this, were, this is what these people believed. They firmly believed that. And as Christians, they had a right to believe that. As humans, they had a right to their religious convictions, their Christian convictions. And so Eric felt very strongly about this. And so due to his strong Christian convictions about appropriate activities on a Sunday, he would not run or participate in an Olympic event on a Sunday. Now this posed a serious problem and was extremely controversial. But what he did is instead of competing in the 100 meter, which he was hands down champion in, he opted for the 400 meter, which was had heats that were not held on a Sunday, and he'd never run in before. He had never competitively run in the 400 meter. Now, many people back in Britain were outraged. How dare Eric choose to risk a medal for his own country just because of his religious convictions. They sent him to run at that 100 meter event because he was good at it. And they were convinced, as was Eric, that if he competed in the 400 meter event, he would lose. But this wasn't a spur of the moment decision. It's not like something he just sprung on the Olympic officials. Months before he had seen the schedule, for what activities would be taking place on what days and what times, and had already notified the Olympic officials of his choice to compete in the 400 meter. But that didn't stop people from being angry. And what's sad about this is at that time, England, Scotland would have called themselves Christian nations. And they would have taken pride in how they were reaching out to the whole world with the message of the gospel. And yet, and yet, when one of their own, a son of missionaries, no less, wants to stand for his convictions and not compete in an event on Sunday. Do they support him? 
Do they honor him? Do they back him up with this? No, they attack him. They accuse him of treason. And even the Prince of Wales reached out to Eric and begged him to change his mind, essentially asking Eric to go against his Christian convictions for the sake of sports, for the sake of notoriety, for the sake of a gold medal for his country. And Eric held fast in his convictions. And he is an excellent example, an excellent example for Christians of all ages, whether you're a young person or an elderly person, to stand by your convictions. If you believe a certain thing is wrong, if you believe a certain thing is dangerous for you spiritually, you have every right to stand by that conviction, no matter what anyone says. As Christians, we're not supposed to go around attacking other people's convictions. This was Eric's conviction. So, what happens? He's convinced he's going to lose the 400 meter because he's never competed in it. He knows the 100 meter is his best one. Well, he was under a lot of pressure, needless to say. And at the time, Eric felt quite alone in his choice. But his coach stood with him, and oddly enough, so did one of the Olympic massage therapists that had been working with him. On the morning of the Olympic 400-meter final competition, Eric was handed a folded square of paper, a gift from one of the team masseurs, and he opened it up, and it said, in the old book, referring to the Bible, it says, He that honors me, I will honor, wishing you the best of success always. And Eric was so moved to find out there was someone else that supported him. And let's face it, guys, there were probably thousands of Christians and non-Christians in England, in Scotland, and Ireland that respected this young man's stand for his convictions. But their voices were not heard. There were others, I know, that must have been standing with him. But this simple note, just a couple of sentences in it, gave him extra confidence, gave him extra strength, encouraged him. And guys, that's why it is so important that we encourage one another. A few words spoken in an appropriate time can make a huge difference in someone's life. Well, it's the day of the race. The 51st Highland Brigade pipe band is outside the stadium playing for an hour before he ran. Many of those among his countrymen that are in the stands are there believing he's going to lose and angry with him for risking a gold medal. So, inspired by the biblical message he had gotten in that note, he decided he was going to do his very best. He would aim to win. He would put thoughts of losing outside of his mind and aim to win. He ran, okay? I am not familiar with all of the terminology that goes into these types of events, but from the best that I can understand, the 400 meter had been considered a middle distance event in which runners raced around the first bend and then coasted through the back leg. Liddell raced the whole of the first 200 meters and he decided to treat the race as a complete sprint. He couldn't see uh, the other runners because he was placed in the outside lane. And so he continued to race, not just through the first 
uh, part, but all the way around that final bend. And he was challenged as he ran down that home straight, but he held on to take the win. He won the gold medal for that 400-meter event. And, and with all these people in the stands of his own countrymen thinking he was going to lose, not only did he win the gold medal, but he broke Olympic and world records with a time of 47.6 seconds. He also won a bronze medal in the 200-meter finals, and his performance in his gold medal-winning event set a record that lasted for 12 years. He was victorious. And what a lesson that had to be to all the Christians that were berating him for putting his convictions ahead of a gold medal. What a lesson that had to be for them. And it's important that we respect the convictions of others. It is important that we don't make fun of them, that we don't ridicule them, that we don't mock them. It is important that we respect those convictions. And it's important we respect our own convictions. If we feel like something would be dangerous to, dangerous for us to participate in spiritually, if we feel like something would be displeasing to the Lord, then we as Christians have that right before God to stand in that and say, I will not participate. Now, that doesn't mean that we take our convictions and we force them on other people. That's also wrong. But we need to stand for our own convictions. So, that's one of the things that stands out to me about Eric Liddell's life, is he was a man of conviction. When he felt something was right, he would do it. When he felt something was wrong, he didn't do it. He didn't try to force anyone over to his viewpoint, and he didn't mock or, you know, and that's another thing, too. If we have certain convictions, we don't have a right to mock those that don't have our convictions. That is most unchristian behavior. Uh, and mocking and making fun and ridiculing, that type of thing has no place in the heart or in the mouth of a Christian. We are not to do that. So I think he was an excellent, excellent example. Now, um, we can only imagine the kind of training and discipline that went into Eric achieving these victories. But as we look at his life, we're going to see that equal training and equal discipline went into his Christian life also. Well, when the Olympics were over, Eric went back to college again where he was studying pure science. And he... Uh, continued with his athletic competitions. He continued with his athletic training. But after graduation, he set his sights on a completely different goal. A goal that he felt like the Lord had placed before him. A race that he was to run, but not one on a physical track, you might say, but on a spiritual track, on a spiritual running track. And that is the mission field. Eric returned to China as a teacher and uh, as, uh, I guess you might say, a um, trial missionary. And he said that he loved running. He truly loved it, but God had made him for China. And so he arrived in China in 1925 at the ripe old age of 23 years old. And uh, he kept competing uh, professionally. Uh, it was sporadic, but he did keep competing kept himself uh, physically fit. Now, initially, he was tasked with teaching at a private Christian school for wealthy Chinese. 
the reason that you'll see so many times missionary groups setting up these types of schools is they believe they could influence that nation for good by teaching Christian principles to the young people, to the kids of that nation. And so as uh, part of their education, which was uh, the school endeavored to provide a first-class education in all its secular studies and also in its Christian studies. So Eric's job was to teach chemistry and coach both track and rugby. And as he was working on that, he was also trying to learn Chinese. He was teaching Sunday school, very active. So Eric's first furlough came in 1932, which was seven years after he had arrived in China. He was ordained as a minister at that time, and then he returned to China in 1934, and it was during that time after he returned that he was married to uh, a Canadian missionary named Florence McKenzie. And he and Florence uh, loved each other very much. There was an age difference between the two of them. He first met her when she was very young, and he didn't pay much attention to her. But once she was grown, he found himself falling in love with her. And so uh, he married her. And again, her name was Florence McKenzie. So we find Eric in the mission field, and someone's interviewing him. And they say, Eric, have you ever wondered what it would be like if you hadn't chosen the missionary path? And I like Eric's response. It's very down-to-earth. He said, it's natural for a chap to think over all that sometimes, but I'm glad I'm at the work I'm engaged in now. A fellow's life counts for far more at this than the other. So he was also asked about his favorite verse, and was it about the one about uh, the brace being to him who runs it? And Eric's response was that his favorite was about running, that we may obtain not an earthly crown, which interestingly enough, Eric had already won through his Olympic competitions, but an eternal crown. Now, Eric did keep running and competing while in China, and here's a funny story about him. Some say his greatest running feat occurred after a race. Um, he was on a kind of tight time schedule to get back aboard ship to get back to a certain place he was supposed to be in China, where it happened to be at his then fiance Florence, was at. And so the race is over, and they play the song for his country, and he stands, and then they play the song for his competitor from France, and he thinks, well, this is the polite thing to do. And then they play the song, I think, for Germany. He's like, well, again, this is the polite thing to do. And now he's running short on time. He's running full throttle through the streets with his bag, and he gets to the the uh, shipyard. The ship he's supposed to get on is already moving away from the dock, and he runs, and he runs, and he looks up and he takes his bag and he throws it and it lands on the ship. He runs and then he makes the leap um, from the moving ship, from the dock to the moving ship. And I, I think somewhere I read that that leap was like almost 15 feet. And of course that might have been exaggerated through time. But those that saw him that knew him said that was his greatest running feat ever. And they suspected it might have something to do with the fact that at the other end of that ship, when he landed, his fiance would be there. But, again, he did keep himself in shape. And I think that's a 
that's a good message for men that being physically fit does not have to be at variance with being a good Christian. There's nothing wrong with keeping your body healthy. There's nothing wrong with athletic competition. There's nothing wrong with professional athletics as long as it is the Lord that you keep number one in your life. And that goes for girls too. Uh, girls that uh, are into athletics and girls that are into physical fitness. But the reason I'm emphasizing men is not that I'm trying to act like girls don't like sports, but from the comment I made earlier about how much talk there is of toxic masculinity, and it is something that needs discussed, but we don't always talk about what examples are of Christian masculinity. And I think Eric is an excellent example of that. Um, he, You don't have to let masculine things come in get in the way of your Christian relationship with God okay I guess that's what I'm trying to say in a very clumsy manner and I apologize for that but again I think he's a good example of healthy masculinity now he was serving as a missionary in one of the most dangerous times in Chinese history and at this time there were many of the Chinese battling among themselves and still more Chinese that had grown angry at the presence of so many foreigners in their country, foreigners that were exerting an influence on their country, that were changing their culture, changing how they did things, and many of the Chinese grew angry at this, angry enough that there were uh, those that were in favor of killing off the foreigners, especially the Christian missionaries. Now, this, and again, this was a very dangerous time to be a missionary. At one time, Eric had to accompany a fellow missionary's body back to the missionary compound. That young man had been shot by robbers. And, you know, that had to be very sobering to him to accompany that body and realize that could be himself. And here he was helping carry a body back of a friend that had been senselessly murdered. And he could be living a life of fame and luxury back in Europe, continuing his life as an international track star. Yet in spite of all this, Eric chose to stay in China. Then his parents were forced to go back to Scotland because of his father's health. And so it was no longer like his family was there in China. And yet Eric chose to stay. Eric was where the Lord wanted him to be. That was his condition for where he would be, is whether or not this is where the Lord wanted him to be. He put the Lord first in all of these decisions. By 1937, uh, again, Eric Liddell was still in China, the looming threat of Japanese invasion began to come more and more real. I remember Eric had a brother, Rob, that he was in boarding school and college with, and his brother, Rob, was studying medicine at the time. So Eric was invited by his brother, Rob, to help with the medical treatment of Chinese who were fleeing the invading Japanese. However, they didn't just limit medical treatment to Chinese. They helped anyone that needed medical help. Anyone they came across that was sick or injured or uh, wounded, and they would provide them with that medical assistance they needed. Now, this also involved crossing Japanese lines as the war itself took hold in China. 
And this was a very dangerous thing to do, but the Lord kept Eric safe. And while he was doing this, his wife and kids were in a safe area in China so that he wasn't bringing them into uh, danger. Now, Eric worked long, long hours traveling in the war-torn areas, preaching and tending the sick. Uh, many times he had to carry injured people to the hospital on his bike over rough roads while dodging gunfire. Now, <laughs> that kind of, I don't know about you, but that I, I think of that and I kind of get a, a Rambo-esque image here. <laughs> he was a very brave man, okay? True courage. And also, as we're seeing through his life, true humility and true service to others. Um, all aspects that to me are desirable qualities in a Christian man. Now, in the meantime, the Japanese were taking over more and more of the country. And there was a lot of talk that the foreigners in China, in China were going to be locked up. And then by 1941, the war with Japan uh, was in full swing. And this is when Eric realized it was no longer safe for his wife, Florence, and his daughters uh, to remain in China and remain safely. British nationals were strongly encouraged to evacuate the country. And Eric had a tough decision to make, probably the hardest decision of his entire life. Would he stay in China and send his family to safety? Or would he go with them to safety? And when he had to make this decision, he already had two daughters, and his wife was expecting a third child, who would also turn out to be a daughter. And so uh, he put his wife and his daughters on a boat, on a ship that was headed for safety. Now, the book that I chose to read about Eric started off with this scene. And as you finished reading that section, you realized that the way it was presented, his wife was reliving that in her mind in a dream. And so, the, uh, from Florence's viewpoint, they were in the room uh, that she and the girls would be staying in on the ship, and Eric was there. He was, you know, hugging them and telling them he loved them. And then, a, uh, I believe it was a horn that sounded to indicate that it was time for all non-passengers to get off the ship, that the ship would be leaving soon. And Eric stood up to leave, and his wife and his daughters, they went to the railing on the ship, and they saw him on the dock. Now, in this dream, where... 40 years later, seriously, 40 years later, this woman is still reliving that moment in her life. 40 years later, in her dream, she begins to scream and to cry out to Eric to come with us, get back on the ship. Don't stay. You've got to come with us. And in the book I was reading, she is awakened from her dream by one of her daughters. And the daughter says, Mother, you know, you are having a dream. And her mother says, when it happened, I didn't cry out for Eric to stay, did I? And she says, no, mother, you didn't. You, you, you know, you didn't cry out like that. 
And what struck me with this, more than any other missionary biography I have ever read, is the tremendous price that was paid by the families of these missionaries. The name of the missionary goes on in, on record and in history, but we don't always see the horrible price that was paid by that family. For 40, 40 years later, this dear woman was still reliving the moment when she was forever separated from her young husband. I don't think they'd even been married 10 years yet. Forever separated from him never to see him again. The child that she carried in her womb would never look into the eyes of its father on this earth, would never hear his voice, would never feel his loving embrace. That family paid a tremendous price for their commitment to God. And that's one of the things that I want to make sure I get across here. We don't ever forget the price that a family pays. When a loved one does a work for God. Well, they leave, heading back to the mother's native Canada, back to safety. And Eric remains because he feels that is what God is telling him to do. In 1943, Eric was imprisoned in a POW camp. And disease, fear, and depression were rampant through that camp. But by all accounts, as I read about what went on in that camp, I do believe that Eric was where the Lord wanted him to be. In this, Eric was much like uh, the Apostle Paul, that he saw being imprisoned as a chance to continue his ministry, to continue reaching people for the Lord, to continue living out uh, the life of Jesus Christ in his own life. So, to the kids in the camp, he was known as Uncle Eric. No longer was he Eric Liddell, gold medalist, or Eric Liddell, Chinese missionary for the London Missionary Society. He was Uncle Eric. And he was known among the young people, and, well, among the adults, too, as for being kind and godly. He would tutor the kids in camp so they wouldn't fall behind in their studies. Now that's nice, but I want you to think for a moment the message he was sending to the kids with this. These kids who were imprisoned, uh, some of whom were separated from her, their parents, they were frightened. Their future seemed so uncertain, and yet this simple act of tutoring them, he was saying, you're going to get out of this prison camp when the war is over, and you're going to need to go back to school. And you're going to need to be up to date on your studies. A subliminal message of hope to these kids. I love that. The kids, in turn, loved Eric dearly. Uncle Eric. One child, and you have to just absolutely love this. One child described him as Jesus in running shoes. <laughs> and um, his attire when he was in the prison camp was his worn-out running shoes, a pair of very dilapidated khaki uh, shorts, and a shirt that had been made from someone's window curtains, most likely uh, with decorative window curtains with little flowers on them. But that's what he—that's what his his attire was. And he would referee the kids' games too. Now, you take a bunch of kids and you lock them up, and you don't give them a way to expend that energy. You're going to have fights. You're going to have 
mis mischievousness that could possibly lead to their death. They were in an enemy POW camp. And so Eric started refereeing the kids' games. And that way, the uh, Japanese prison officials saw that the games were organized, they were refereed, and they wouldn't interfere. This gave the kids a way to expend their energy and build a camaraderie between them. Now, here's where a problem came up. The kids wanted to play games on Sunday, too. And so initially, because of his convictions about Sunday, Eric would not... Uh, Eric would not um, referee them. But the kids played games anyways, and when they did, fights broke out. And when fights break out in a POW camp, enemy officials, enemy officers are going to get involved. Enemy guards are going to get involved, and that's not good for anyone. And so because of this, because he saw the problems that were coming, because he saw that this could negatively impact the entire POW camp, Eric suspended his conviction about Sunday, and he would referee their games on Sunday. That's all he would do. He didn't um, go against any of his other convictions, but for the safety of the kids and the safety of others in the POW camp, he let go of that one aspect of his conviction. And I think, again, that is very honorable, and that is a very... Christian thing to do when you take it in the context that people's lives could well be endangered if he did not. This time it wasn't the matter of a gold medal, it was the matter of human lives. And Eric put human lives in this instance, or throughout his entire life, you could see his concern for the life of others. It, it, this was a continuing thing for him. He was risking his life to help the wounded and sick as the Japanese were invading China. So this was not a new thing, his concern for human life. I would say Eric was most definitely in favor of putting human life first above other things. So, he was not yet 40. He was skin and bones, having already lost 30 pounds from his lean frame. And uh, he was tired, no doubt. He was malnourished. But he took this POW camp experience as another ministry opportunity. He would rise every day before dawn and keep working until curfew at 10 p.m. And they said he was always doing something, but not for himself. He was always doing something for others. It might be chopping wood for fuel. It might be helping to cook in the kitchen. He would clean and sweep in their barracks. And he would gladly repair whatever needed fixing. And besides his work with the kids and tutoring and coaching and refereeing games, he would counsel and console the adults. Every Sunday he preached in their unofficial church. But over time, all this work began to take its toll on his body. So at the POW camp, we see Eric doing three of the things he loved best. Organizing sports, teaching and tutoring, and most importantly, guiding people spiritually. He gave special attention and care to older people, the weak and the ill, and was always involved in any kind of Christian meetings that were held. One guy said he was the finest Christian gentleman it has been my pleasure to meet. 
In all the time in the camp, I never heard him say a bad word about anybody. And another person said, he gave me two things. One was his worn-out running shoes, but the best thing he gave me was the baton of forgiveness. He taught me to love my enemies, the Japanese, and to pray for them. Another quote about Eric. None of us will ever forget this man who was totally committed to putting God first. A man whose humble life combined muscular Christianity with radiant godliness. Another person said Eric spoke with a charming Scottish brogue and more than anyone I had ever known typified the joyful Christian life. He had a marvelous sense of humor and was full of laughter and practical jokes, but always in good taste. Another one said it is rare indeed that a person has the good fortune to meet a saint, but he came as close to it as anyone I have ever known. And they said when the kids were finally released from the POW camp, they were all telling their parents and their family about Uncle Eric. And it took a while before people realized that Uncle Eric was Eric Liddell, the Olympian. But he made such an impact on the lives of those kids. Now, Eric's favorite hymn while he was in the POW camp was, Be still, my soul, the Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul, thy best, thy heavenly friend, through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. Now, it's said that Eric became the camp's conscience without ever being pious, sanctimonious, or judgmental. Eric never forced his religion on anyone, nor did he expect others to share his beliefs or his religious convictions. He would not take it for granted that everyone around him was a Christian like himself. And he was surrounded by all types, all nationalities too. And they said when he preached at the POW camp, it was more of a conversation, as if you were standing in the backyard talking to a friend over the fence. And that approach worked for Eric. And one camp resident expressed it this way, You came away from Eric's meetings as if, You'd been given a dose of goodness. Well, of course, the rigors of camp life affected Eric, but soon something more than that was affecting his health. Eric's walk had slowed, and his speech had also slowed, and it began to take him longer to do things. And remember, he's not even 40 yet. His sleep became fitful, and his weariness increased steadily. His once erect shoulders began to stoop. And his balance was affected, and dizzy spells were increasing. His vision became very blurred on some days. And when someone would express concern, Eric would just say it was the result of overwork. Well, in 1945, he fell seriously ill and was rushed to the infirmary. And there's differing reports about what they said at the infirmary, but at that time, he was suffering from an inoperable brain tumor the effects of which were made much worse through the harsh treatment and malnutrition of the POW camp. And so we see Eric growing weaker and weaker. He had given up his opportunity to be released so that a pregnant woman could go free instead. 
And in the last letter he wrote to his wife from the POW camp, he informed her that he had suffered a nervous breakdown from overwork. He grew more and more ill and finally was in the infirmary not to come out again. And his last words were, It's complete surrender. And then Eric Liddell slipped into a coma from which he would never awaken. But before he slipped into that coma, he asked uh, the Ragtag Salvation Army Band that had formed at the POW camp if they would play his favorite hymn, and they did. And he passed from this world to the next on February 21, 1945, just five weeks before the camp would be liberated by the Allied forces. And they said his loss at the camp was felt. It was like a void. You could feel something missing. But that loss, we can only imagine how much greater that void was felt by his family. And as I said, when the camp was later liberated, the children would tell their families for many years to come all about a wonderful man named Uncle Eric. His daughter was asked about the sacrifice the family had made in leaving Eric behind and his decision to stay behind. And she said she had heard so much from the kids that had been touched by her daddy's life, that her dad had helped and supported and guided and encouraged, that she felt like that he had done the right thing. And you have to be amazed at that kind of a graciousness in a young Oh, and a woman who lost her dad at such a young age, and yet she felt it was okay because he was able to help so many others. Well, he was buried behind the officers' quarters at the POW camp. After the war, many people were concerned because there was no permanent marker erected in Eric's honor. And so a granite monument was erected in his memory at the camp where he had risen to be a leader, trusted, fair, and caring. Three qualities so important in a godly Christian man. They said while others formed cliques and sought to protect their own, Eric excluded no one from his concern. And the scripture they chose for Eric's monument seems perfect for Eric. They shall mount up with wings as eagles, and they shall run and not be weary. Eric had run his final race, and once again, he had achieved victory. And as I wrap this up, I would like to share with you a quote from Eric. Circumstances may appear to wreck our lives in God's plans, but God is not helpless among the ruins. God's love is still working. He comes in and takes the calamity and uses it victoriously, working out his wonderful plan of love. And so as I conclude this podcast on Eric Liddell, again, I want to emphasize that he is an excellent example of Christian masculinity. He is also an excellent example of standing by our convictions. And I just... Now, I've been reading missionary biographies for years. I've been retelling the stories of these missionaries for several years now. And none of them has really honestly struck me as deeply as studying about Eric Liddell. 
And I hope that you'll go and do some research on your own. There's biographies about him, as I mentioned. The movie Chariots of Fire is set in his Olympic days. And the film On Wings of Eagles is set uh, during his experiences at the POW camp. So I hope you'll look up more about this man of God. And I thank you for listening. From Forgotten Sheep, this is Sarah McCaslin.